This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. This week in the Yonkazine Brief, we talk about medicinal cannabis. No, we're not talking about medical marijuana, which you may get via a dispensary in a state where this is legally available for medicinal purposes, but about medicinal cannabis. There is a difference between the two products. And today in the Yonkazine Brief, you'll find out what that difference is and why this may be important. We talk with Guy Chamberland, the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Scientific Officer of Tetra Biopharma, a biopharmaceutical company developing cannabinoid-based drugs. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Yonkazine Brief. Tetra Biopharma has a clinical development program aimed at bringing novel drugs and treatments to patients and their healthcare providers. To do this, the company has several subsidiaries that are engaged in the development of biopharmaceutical drugs and natural health products containing cannabis and other medicinal plant-based elements. Tetra Biopharma is focused on combining the traditional methods of medicinal cannabis use with the supporting scientific validation and safety data required by federal and national regulators, physicians and insurance companies. The Oncosin Brief is developed in collaboration with the online journal Oncosin at www.oncosin.com. Let's listen to our interview. In this edition of the Oncosin Brief, we speak with Dr. Guy Chamberland, the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Scientific Officer of Tetra Biopharma. We talked with Dr. Chamberlain about the company, the company's goal, about his goals, and about the importance of supporting patients' needs through clinical evidence. Dr. Chamberlain, welcome to the Ongerzing Brief. Well, thank you, Peter, for having me. So before we're going to talk about what most people would call medical marijuana, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you became involved in this area. Well, I've been developing uh, new uh, drugs my whole career. So since 1995, I worked in various pharmaceutical companies, and I basically developed, a, you could say, an expertise in taking molecules from discovery, bringing them into first in human clinical trials uh, authorized by the U.S. FDA and, and Health Canada, and then hopefully if the product was uh, viable, bringing it to, to the market as an approved uh, Drug. I've never worked actually on a simple synthetic molecule in my career. I have a PhD in toxicology, so I kind of always ended up with molecules that had safety issues. And obviously, this is what uh, brought me to come and work uh, into the world of cannabis and trying to develop cannabis as a prescription drug based on this uh, expertise in, say, drug safety. Also, it's not the first botanical drug I work on in my career, so I was also used to working with the challenge of a basically a live uh, material that you have to handle versus, say, a synthetic. Now, you mentioned uh, if, if you go on the street and, and you listen to what people in the media will talk about, they often refer to medical marijuana. Now, in the little chat that we had before we started recording this program, you mentioned that you actually use a, or prefer to use a different term to avoid a misunderstanding about that. Can you tell a yeah. little, little bit about that? Yeah, that's correct. In the both in the say medical 
world uh, of uh, even in your states where medical marijuana is, say, uh, legal, clinicians will refer to what they prescribe or dispense to patients as medical cannabis because the word marijuana has more uh, signification towards the street use of the illegal substance and not towards the medication, which is the plant from cannabis. Now, there is a difference between, for example, the local dispensaries uh, throughout the U.S. in each state, they might be called different, and what you do by making a drug that ultimately comes in the hands of doctors and need to be prescribed by doctors. Now, what is the difference uh, for somebody that may would like would like to use medical marijuana or may have a marijuana indi- uh, card or indication? How is that difference between? Can you explain a little bit about those two differences? There's actually several major differences. One of them, which is a, a very huge one and a huge investment from a, a pharmaceutical company like ours, is what we call the quality. So what that basically means is that we have to develop our cannabis medications to the same standard that any other prescription drug is developed to and required by, say, your U.S. food and drug regulations. So that means we have to manufacture and grow, actually, our our cannabis sativa or indica under the same standard as the manufacturing of a prescription drug, which is the good manufacturing practices. That means I have to basically validate all of my processes. That includes the harvest, that includes the drying, that includes any processing I do to then put it into, say, a finished goods package that would be dispensed by a pharmacist following the prescription of a physician. So what that means, and this is essential in the drug regulations, is you have to protect the health of a patient, not just point of view of, how could I say, from the safety and efficacy of the molecule, but also what we call the quality, knowing what the impurities are and be sure these impurities are actually controlled and we don't put people at risks of, say, intoxication from something else, even having the wrong plant coming in into, how can I say, the product. We have to be sure and demonstrate to the U.S. FDA that these types of events do not happen and we actually control them. The other aspect that's important from the quality point of view is once you're a patient on a medication, especially something that acts on, on the brain, we have to be sure you're always getting the same dose. So if I gave you, for example, you're getting a pill that's going to give you, say, 10 molecules, every time I you kind of get your prescription filled in, you want to be sure you're getting exactly 10 molecules and not 20 or not two. Getting less could mean you lose efficacy and then you end up in emergency because now your condition is no longer controlled and getting more has obviously safety implications. So that quality file is the major difference in terms of versus say just medical cannabis that's grown and processed in what we call here in Canada good production practices. The other aspect is on the clinical research side. So for us to get a prescription drug approval, we have to demonstrate to the FDA and to the regulators in other countries that we've done the research to demonstrate that our treatment is superior, statistically superior to a placebo effect within what we want to kind of promote. So if I want to say my cannabis medication is going to be effective to relieve your pain and advance cancer, I have to show that in a clinical trial that's well-designed, double-blind, so the physician did not know what patients got, could have gotten a placebo, could have gotten a drug, they don't know. So we have to remove the entire bias 
from the research. And these controlled clinical trials are very different than, say, what companies claim they have observational studies or case studies. Observational studies of you're looking at kind of asking people who are taking your product to fill in questionnaires. That's not a controlled study, and you have bias in there. And the same thing if it's a case study. Case studies, I take cases that I find kind of interesting to me, and I report those. So that's not accepted by the FDA, and it's not actually recognized by the great majority of physicians who who went through kind of formal training into the type of evidence you need. And more and more medicine has been moving towards what we call an evidence-based practice. So they want to see the data. They want to see the studies that show this medication is going to help their patient. And a physician has to do no harm to a patient. So they have to recommend the best treatment to their patient. And if they're not going to recommend, say, another prescription therapeutic, they have to be sure they're going to do it because I showed them the evidence that mine will help this patient. That's the major differences. Now, there is also another difference you mentioned about clinical trials. My understanding is, is that if I think that's still up to today, that it is very difficult to do clinical trials with cannabis or in some cases medical marijuana because it is a still a classified, federally speaking, illegal drug. So that makes it very difficult. Yeah, it is a Schedule One substance in the U.S., and it's regulated under, say, similar regulations, for example, in Canada. I mean, for me, I've been developing drugs my, my whole career. So for me, say, the Schedule One regulations, if we can call them that, is just another set of regulations. So you kind of just have to do the paperwork, build in the time delays required to get the licenses where you do, and you can implement a clinical trial. So for us in Canada, that's what we do. That's what we're setting up to do in the United States as we initiate our clinical trials in the States. And that's basically what we're going to be doing. And for me, Schedule 1 is normal. Other drugs have gone through there. Morphine was a Schedule 1 before it got approved. Same thing with most of the psychoactive drugs. So it's nothing new. Obviously, pharmaceutical companies have a, how can I say, a system, a structure. They have human resources that this is their specialty. And obviously, the marijuana growers, for example, their specialty has been growing cannabis and it's not dealing with the FDA and dealing with the Drug Enforcement Agency. So, yes, you're correct. The clinical trials is a break to many what we call here licensed producers to grow cannabis because that's not their expertise, whereas this is ours. And, and that would be, from where you're standing, a big difference between people that may get their product from a medical marijuana or recreational marijuana environment like a dispensary uh, versus uh, the prescription drug that you produce. That's correct. And the day that we get our drug approval from the FDA and here in Canada, Health Canada, or in, in Europe, we will then be able to get, say, public insurance for patients so it won't be just coming out of their, their pockets. And the insurers are the kind of... Uh, the same thing. They want to see the clinical data to be sure that, you know, what they're covering is obviously good for the patient as well. So it's a, it, you know, it's a, I know there's a huge appetite and I understand the need for patients to get access to cannabis. I agree with Canada's Supreme Court decision that said that patients should have access to cannabis. But for me, giving access to cannabis to a patient means that your physician can legally prescribe it. And as a patient, you can get help from a pharmacist who will also be able to legally dispense it to you and guide you on potential drug interactions with the other medication you're taking. Let's take a short break. 
After the break, we're back with our interview with Guy Chamberland, the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Scientific Officer of Tetra Biopharma, a biopharmaceutical company developing cannabinoid-based drugs. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Ongesim Brief. Each day, researchers make discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Their progress is made possible with the help of clinical trials. Clinical trials are the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more. Together, we can stand up for all of us. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. And welcome back. I'm Peter Hoffman and this is the Yonkazine Brief. If you're just joining us, today in the Yonkazine Brief, we talk with Guy Chamberlain, the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Scientific Officer of Tetra Biopharma, a biopharmaceutical company developing novel cannabinoid-based drugs. To start off with this, has the FDA in the United States and Health Canada in in Canada approved the use of medical marijuana or cannabis-based drugs? Basically, in the United States, so far, the FDA has not approved any, let's call it cannabis drug. The only drug that has been approved that contains CBD is Epidelax. And, you know, we've been working with the FDA in our case in developing this as what we call an investigational drug. So an investigational drug is the status that, say, a product has as the FDA kind of oversees and ensures the safety of Americans by reviewing all of our data and ensuring our clinical trials are well-designed and obviously will answer the questions the FDA needs. And same thing with the quality of our product. They review it and ensure that, how could I say, acceptable for giving to uh, human subjects based on both the international research ethics as well as the FDA's uh, regulations and basically standards to protect uh, citizens of the United States. So that's basically where it is. But so far, there has not been any medical, say, smoked or vaporized dried bud or flower product or even that cannabis oil that has been approved as a drug by the FDA. Here in Canada, our regulatory agency created what we call the cannabis regulation. So they created a different regulation for them to kind of manage products that are going to be available to patients through different dispensaries or different, I guess I say, commercial vehicles to get cannabis to both patients and for recreational use. This is not a drug approval. Our standards are the same as, say, the FDA and Health Canada and the FDA collaborate on many things. And obviously, We kind of ensure our medications in North America and even across Europe and and all the countries that participate in what we call the International Conference on Harmonization, that basically the standard is the same. But Health Canada has yet to approve any cannabis drug so far. And obviously, we're working, doing clinical trials that have been authorized by Health Canada. So they also do the same thing as the FDA. They have an oversight on our quality and have an oversight on our clinical research. Now, let's dig a little bit deeper. If you look at marijuana, if you look at cannabis, how does it actually help patients? My opinion, and this is just just mine, we've done so far, 
three what we call phase one clinical trials. So these are trials that we get into volunteers. We've looked at smoked cannabis, we've looked at vaporized cannabis, and we've also looked at cannabis oils. And for us, these studies and volunteers are important because what we want to understand is how long does it take and how much of the THC enters your body and actually goes to your brain and what does it do? So we looked at cognitive function, how it affects it, how much do you have THC in your blood, CBD, and we also look what it does to your heart, what it does to your respiration and your blood pressure and everything. So we have to characterize all that to ensure that the day we give it to a patient for a cancer patient, which is a more, I don't want to use the word fragile because not necessarily an appropriate word, but from a safety point of view, they, they're obviously not as strong, say, as a healthy person. So we have to be sure and convince the regulators that I'm not going to do any harm to these patients. So we do those trials. And in there, we characterize how cannabis works. And today, we believe we understand how THC helps patients and why patients continue to want THC over medications like, say, fentanyl or even morphine. And we've been able to show that in, in healthy volunteers, and that allowed us then to start trials in, in patients. And today, we believe that's the benefit. And it's also, smoke is very, very fast-acting. And we believe smoke as a therapy to, say, advanced cancer patients does have the benefits that patients are looking for. To explain it simply for, you, for your audience, it kind of disassociates you from your suffering. So it's kind of like, yeah, I didn't relieve your pain, but your pain doesn't bother you anymore. Yet you still know it's there. And with time, what that does is because you can sleep better, your pain then eventually starts to recover over time. And I think that's why people want it. But that, that, again, is what I have to prove in a clinical trial to the governments. But that's kind of our hypothesis. And that's what pushed us to try and work in breakthrough pain. And because we think we will get a faster relief for patients than, say, fentanyl will bring to patients. You mentioned smoke. And uh, if you listen to the people from the American Cancer Society, there remains a major concern about smoking. And of course, when they talk about smoking, in most cases, they talk about tobacco and tobacco-based products. They talk about vaping also as a major concern. How do those concerns relate to a cannabis product like yours? I guess to tell you an interesting story. So the first time we interacted with the US FDA on smoking cannabis as a drug, I mean, I was willing to recognize potential safety effects of, of cannabis and the FDA were, you know, it was kind of, no, that's not really what the evidence shows. So if you actually take the time to look at the evidence, even what was published in a report by the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, it shows that actually there is no evidence showing that cannabis can cause, say, mouth or throat cancer or even lung cancer. So there is no evidence to support that. The evidence actually shows the opposite. There's actually been a study with THC that was done actually by the National Toxicology Program of the NIH or the FDA, that it was able to show that in rats and mice over two years that actually the THC basically stopped the growth of tumors that grow naturally in rats as, and mice as they age. So we see a lot of evidence that shows that THC and some cannabinoids possibly are, say, prevent the growth of cancers. So it's when you look at that type of evidence, it's not surprising that in humans, epidemiological studies and patient surveys have not been able to show any signs of cancer in these patients. 
In terms of COPD and other lung diseases, it's the same thing. There's actually an excellent randomized double-blind trial that was done versus tobacco to understand, you know, why cannabis say, doesn't seem to cause these lung conditions, whereas smoking a similar plant material does. And the study shows actually something very significant, which is can- medical cannabis say smoke did not cause COPD whereas tobacco smoke did, but if you combine the two, it was actually worse than just smoking tobacco. So we actually have an association with the Ontario Lung Association here in Canada where you know, we share with them our clinical data and we're trying to work because, yes, if we do get approval, say, for a smoke cannabis drug, we want them to help us. And it has to come from an independent, say, patient support group as well because we're viewed as being biased because we're a commercial entity. So that's why we give them the research. That's why we even fund research programs with them because it's going to be important for them to educate patients that will take a smoke cannabis not to smoke tobacco because it is worse. So that's a complex thing. As a company, we've, for the FDA and Health Canada, we've had to analyze completely the content of smoke, what goes into the body, and same thing with vape. So yes, vape is also a concern to the cancer society and even to the lung society because, and I think to regulators from interactions I've had with both Health Canada and the FDA because smoking has been for centuries, even thousands of years. So, so we have a good understanding of the risks. Vaping is relatively new, so we don't really understand all of the risks. So companies like us that characterize by knowing exactly what's in the vapor, what goes in the patient, and then doing like we did the phase one trial, we actually have a lot of excellent information for, say, your, your cancer society in the U.S., as well as our regulators. And that's why I think getting companies like Tetra Biopharma to develop cannabis as drugs is important for society because this evidence will then educate people that are kind of not against it, but more hesitant to back it because the evidence is not there. But the more industry does this formal research, the more we'll get them the evidence they need to prescribe it or support its use. You mentioned uh, THC, you mentioned cannabinoids. Can you really briefly explain the difference? Because I understand that all those products are in, in cannabis-based drugs or marijuana-based drugs. Can you explain a little bit about the difference uh, for our audience? Basically, the plant has about, I think there's probably changes all the time as researchers discover more, but there's at least something like 111 different cannabinoids. THC is the best known one. It's the one that's psychoactive. Some of the other cannabinoids like CBD have anti-inflammatory properties and other properties. And we know many others. There's CBG, uh, CBC, CBN, so on and so forth. And all these cannabinoids are suspected to have other health benefits. Obviously, if we still don't say there's the evidence for THC and CBD as a drug, you can imagine these other minor cannabinoids are even less known. Everybody's obviously trying to study them as they look for, for new treatments. But all of these cannabinoids are obviously of key importance as we move forward, for sure. We've discovered and as we validated and, and understood what was in the smoke, for example, we discovered things that led to us being able even to file a patent application because we discovered things that nobody knew was in the smoke and what happened when people basically smoked the cannabis and what they received. So. You know, we're just at the beginning of uh, our understanding of cannabinoids. The drugs that you're developing, I mean, they have a higher percentage of THC in there, or is there, is there something else in there that makes them really work? Well, a lot of pharmacologists believe, and I do as well as a scientist, 
I think a lot of people believe it's the combination, not just of even the cannabinoids, but of another class of molecules called terpenes that are in the plants that when you smoke cannabis, for example, or vaporize a dried flower product, you're actually getting a blend of cannabinoids and terpenes. And that some even refer to it as the entourage effect, that you will get this additive or synergistic benefit from the blend of the ingredients, which is different from a classical, say, pharmaceutical drug approach, where it's a single type molecule. And yes, there are combination drugs, but not, say, more than two or three drugs in the same, say, pill type of thing. If you go to natural medicine and herbal medicine, for example, this concept similar, say, to an entourage effect where it's multiple medicinal ingredients that act on the body is well established and recognized. Uh, from a pharmaceutical point of view, developing a 10-molecule synthetic drug is a huge challenge from a regulatory point of view. So that's why, these, again, these natural-based therapies are exciting as a drug developers because it would takes me, say, a lot less time and money to bring, say, a smoked flower product to the market than it would to recreate it synthetically and take it to the market. Let's take a short break here, and then we talk a little bit more with Guy Chamberland, the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Scientific Officer of Tetra Biopharma, a biopharmaceutical company developing novel cannabinoid-based drugs. Some of the best sounds you'll ever hear are generic, safe, effective, even money-saving, just like FDA-approved generic drugs. Even if they don't come in the exact same color or shape as their brand name equivalents, they have the same key ingredients and go through a rigorous review process. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist today and visit fda.gov slash generic drugs. Generics are safe, effective, and can save you money. You'll like the sound of that. This is the Oncazine Brief with Peter Hofflin and Sonia Portillo. Welcome back. I'm Peter Hofflin and this is the Oncazine Brief. If you're just joining us today in the Oncazine Brief, we talk with Guy Chamberlain, the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Scientific Officer of Tetra Biopharma, a biopharmaceutical company developing novel cannabinoid-based drugs. Let's talk a little bit further about the benefits uh, of cannabinoid-based drugs. For example, patients uh, with uh, pain. Now, pain, there's a lot of problems with chronic pain, a lot of drugs that are really kind of very addictive and creating a lot of problems. And this also is something that we see in cancer patients. They may take certain drugs that may help them, but it also creates addiction. How is your product, the cannabinoid-based medication, how does that help in fighting cancer pain? Well, if we look at fighting pain and cannabinoids, and you know, many companies ask, are curious, and many people are curious why a company like Tetra Biopharma decided to develop, say, a smoked cannabis drug. In simple terms, the reason we went down this, this path is because if you look at the history of developing cannabinoids, say, as a prescription drug, is you go back to the first, well, cannabinoid-approved drug, which is Marinol and today called as, as dronabinol. That was done, I think, in 1985, if I'm not mistaken, was approved by, by the FDA. That was a synthetic THC drug. And it's never been approved for pain. It's only been approved for treating nausea in chemo-induced 
say, vomiting and some uh, AIDS-related, say, anorexia-type conditions. So what's interesting is that dronabinol has never been approved for pain because it's never been able to beat pain in a statistically powered, well-designed clinical trial. Same thing with nabilon, which is a synthetic derivative of THC, uh, is also just approved for the nausea indication. And it's never been approved for pain because they've never been able to show it was superior to placebo. Sativex was the same thing in its clinical trials. It was a one-to-one ratio of THC, CBD, and extract by GW Pharma. And this product, which is approved in some countries for, say, helping patients with multiple sclerosis and some other indications, never worked in cancer pain. It was never able to show so when you sit there as a scientist like me who's been developing drugs my whole career and, you know, the work done by GW Pharma is excellent and you kind of look at it and you say, okay, since 1985 to where GW Pharma was, why hasn't anybody succeeded in pain? So we had to answer that question. And when you looked at all the patient surveys and some, you talked to medical specialists like Dr. Sue Sisley in Arizona and have been researching and working, you know, with medical cannabis. It works a lot using the flower. You try, okay, these patients respond very well. So there must be something we don't understand. So for us, we decided in 2016, let's develop smoke cannabis. And all the money we're going to invest as we develop a smoke cannabis, we actually eventually, hopefully, will understand how it works. And this should lead us to other drugs that are more, say, of the pharmaceutical type. I can tell you today, that's why we filed that patent application. We understand how it works. Now, my challenge is, okay, now I understand it. I need to prove it in a clinical trial. But we believe it's the root of administration, which is inhalation. And the effectiveness is basically has to do with how deep, say, smoke penetrates versus oral, where oral, the absorption, depending if you have food or not, when you're taking your cannabis oil, is only about 5 to 10%. Whereas by inhalation, it's probably about 50%, if not more. So we're getting a huge amount, and by inhalation, it goes straight to the brain where we want it to act. That's why we see in patients, when you smoke cannabis, the blood levels go up very, very fast in a couple of minutes, and the patient is high, let's say, four to 10 minutes, and that's what we want. We want that high, we want that euphoria, and that's what helps the patient get out of their pain. And the oil is a challenge, and and I was at a CanTech meeting earlier this week organized by Paradigm Capital here in Canada, and they had various uh, companies from the States, I forget their names, but several biotech companies, and we're seeing all these companies, including ours, working on the same thing for, say, oral cannabis products, finding ways to increase the bioavailability so that we can get, you know, the THC and CBD into the blood at more significant levels than, say, smoking and try and get into healthier patients in terms of pain population. Obviously, we're going to limit our smoke cannabis to advanced cancer patients because although, you know, we all recognize it's relatively, say, healthy to smoke versus, say, smoking cigarettes, as a company, we, you know, we recognize society's been trying to combat smoking. So obviously, we don't want to push a medication in healthier people that is against where society has been going. And also we recognize, you know, we're going to go towards other therapeutics that will eventually even replace smoking cannabis in the, in the long term. So when you talk about smoking, you talk about the classical cigarette-like smoking and not about vaping. Correct. For us, we had started with the traditional way. I mean, it dates back, uh, I mean, more than centuries over 
5,000 years ago, we have documented evidence that people have been smoking cannabis for even pain management. Uh, so we were talking about really using a pipe, which is a medical device in the food and drug regulations, so a class two medical device to consume a dried flower product that we control our lot-to-lot consistency. So variation, say, from pill to pill is less than 4%. And that way, we ensure you're always getting the same dose. And this is burnt like the way regular people consume, say, smoke cannabis. That we tried to keep intact and develop that as a drug. The FDA gave us our, it's a drug combination, drug device combination product in the, under the U.S. regulations. The FDA granted us our jurisdiction for this product on November 8th of 2016. Now, one of the critics that I've spoken to in the past, they look at smoking cannabis-based products or vaping cannabis products versus, for example, inhalation therapy, in which there is uh, it's a different way of, of getting the drug. What is the reason why you decided to go this way and not, for example, to a inhalation-based kind of therapy, which use more conventional approach to uh, taking a drug? One, you'll see that's where we're heading eventually. The problem, if I wanted to start in 2016 with a normal inhalation therapy, I'm going to give what to the patient other than THC? The thing that people did not know, and we do today since November, we know exactly what goes into the patient's body when you burn cannabis. That was the key we had to understand. We had to know how much of each of these cannabinoids and each of these terpenes is going in why it works. So if you're going to develop another inhaled version of a therapeutic, you need to understand what you're going to give. If you don't know what you're going to give, you're going to waste your money. And we knew it wasn't just THC. We knew it had to be something, other molecules to maintain kind of this entourage effect, why it works. So for sure for us, now that we know that, now that these combinations are even patented for us, we're now going to develop going forward some classical, say, inhalation type molecule uh, formulation. So yes, the critics are kind of right. That's where an industry like ours wants to go. But you had to learn, say, to walk first before you get to that. Otherwise, I'd be wasting my shareholders' money. So once we understand what's in there, once I get a patent protection in place, then I can invest and move it that way. Because patent protection for companies to spend, say, even hundreds of thousands of dollars for our shareholders has to be well. Uh, we have to do it you know, wisely, and obviously it's their money, so we, they want us to be very diligent on what we do. Right. Talking about uh, how society looks at cannabinoid-based uh, drugs, how do medical organizations, medical societies, like here in the United States, for example, the American Association of Cancer Research, who are really focusing on the importance of pain, pain management in cancer, they're really concerned about that. How are they looking at the steps that you are taking? Well, we spend a lot of time, uh, obviously, trying to educate medical associations. And again, that's why we partnered with the uh, Ontario Lung Association, because, you know, in pharma, we have a challenge as, you know, where we wear a biased hat, because obviously, uh, we have to be careful. And it's normal medical society associations say, that protect the interests of physicians, their own, say, professional associations, don't want us to be, you know, promoting drugs like in the past. You know, they don't want us to give kickback to physicians and all that, and society has moved that way. We want to be sure the research that's done and the evidence that goes to, say, help, you know, kind of prescribe a drug, that it's neutral, it's well-balanced, and that. So that's where these lung association-type organizations are key. And for us, partnering with them was essential because we'll give them the info we have, and then they will prepare medical 
continuing education programs to help train, educate physicians on the actual evidence. And society, we need more and more in that. You know, we, obviously, as we start clinical trials in various areas, we interact with physicians. We had what we call a national uh, advisory board meeting late November here in Canada, where we brought in oncologists, palliative care physicians from across of many uh, Canadian major university centers to educate them and get their feedback. What do they need to feel comfortable to prescribe this? And we have to be sensitive. I mean, yes, we're trying to convince the FDA to approve it as a drug, but ultimately I need to convince physicians and their professional organizations that this is an acceptable treatment in terms of a standard of care of patients. And, you know, we do have activities. We have not revealed them in the States yet because we're a public company, but, you know, we're been working hard on the in the U.S. It right. was known that we showed up to meet uh, some offices of senators, and that's part of our job, too, even educating them as to the potential benefits that cannabis-approved drug could do, say, for helping uh, your veterans that are suffering from PTSD and even active military personnel that are suffering from PTSD. It's, it's a huge problem. I mean, you, you send in our country, send soldiers off to war and you know, we have to be sure after they've defended the interests of, of the countries that we actually take care of them. If smoke cannabis or any other form of cannabis is the drug that can help them, you know, I think that's where we have to go. Let's take a short break. After the break, we're back with our interview with Guy Chamberlain, the chief executive officer and chief scientific officer of Tetra Biopharma, a biopharmaceutical company developing novel cannabinoid-based drugs. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncosine Brief. Each day, researchers make discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Their progress is made possible with the help of clinical trials. Clinical trials are the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more. Together, we can stand up for all of us. This is the Oncazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. And welcome back. I'm Peter Hoffman and this is the Oncazine Brief. Our interview today with Guy Chamberlain, the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Scientific Officer of Tetra Biopharma, a biopharmaceutical company developing novel cannabinoid-based drugs, was originally recorded in February 2019. Tell me a little bit more about the company. One of the things is that in late January, you announced that your company acquired a different company called Panang Pharma, if I'm not mistaken. Tell me a little bit about this and how this is going to impact your research and how it is going to impact what you're doing. So if you look at even some of the things we talked about before, I'll start with them. So you'll see why we decided to, to acquire Panag. So one of the areas I told you is that we had to learn to walk first in terms of understanding how smoke cannabis helps patients. We understood that and then that would lead to the next generations, which is a normal say, inhalation type cannabinoid therapeutic. Well, Panag had years of expertise in that area with some very key and internationally recognized experts in this area of developing inhalation uh, analgesics. So that's one reason we wanted is their expertise to 
kind of merge in with ours and bring our next generation, which is a non-smoked analgesic product for, for patients. Ultimately, this company was made up of, in my opinion, and that and many others, amongst probably the, the top leaders in the field of cannabinoid medicine and pharmacology. So they had patents, they had a lot of products under development. So we figured they had the same vision we did of developing prescription cannabis to help patients that were suffering and that the two companies were better off as one. And they were private, we were public, we were obviously the better vehicle to finance all this research. And we had been working together now for more than a year and a half. We had licensed some of their their patents, been co-developing drugs with them. The fit was nice. Uh, so we said, well, time that we uh, acquire them and accelerate some of these projects. There will be a lot of different developments in the future, not only in this marketplace, but also with your company. Correct. And you'll see us in the ocular pain space as well and many other conditions that will eventually be revealed in our press releases. Thank you, Dr. Chamberlain, for helping us understand a little bit more about uh, cannabinoid-based medication. And uh, we definitely going to look forward to uh, more information about what you do and um, where this um, may take us in the future. Thank you very much for having me. And welcome back. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncosine Brief. A cancer diagnosis can be challenging, and cancer patients everywhere are looking for ways to find a cure or relief for symptoms associated with cancer pain or the side effects of chemotherapeutic drugs. Some patients cope by using marijuana. Marijuana, or cannabis, has been used in herbal remedies for centuries. And scientists have identified many biologically active components in the plant called cannabinoids. The Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA, a federal law enforcement agency under the United States Department of Justice responsible to enforce the controlled substances laws and regulations of the United States, lists marijuana and its cannabinoids as Scheduled I controlled substances. This means that they cannot be legally prescribed, possessed, or sold under federal law. It also means that whole or crude marijuana is not approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, for any medical use. However, the use of marijuana to treat some medical conditions is legal under state law in many states. And some pharmaceutical forms are legally available as prescription drugs in the United States and around the world. For example, a pharmaceutical form of THC called dronabinol, marketed as Marinol or Syndras, is prescribed when other drugs generally used to control some of the side effects of chemotherapeutic drugs, such as nausea, have not worked well. Dronabinol is also used to treat loss of appetite and weight loss in people with HIV infection. Another drug is called Nabilon, which is sold under the brand name Sesamet or Canemes. This drug is also a synthetic cannabinoid with therapeutic use to treat some of the side effects of chemotherapy and for neuropathic pain. The package insert and label of Nabilon explains that the drug is chemically similar to the active ingredient found in naturally occurring cannabis sativa. But how does cannabis help cancer patients? As mentioned earlier in this program, a number of clinical trials found that it can be helpful in treating nausea from cancer chemotherapy. Other studies have found that cannabis can be helpful as a treatment of neuropathic pain. 
A number of studies have shown that people who took marijuana extracts in clinical trials need less pain medicine. And more recently, scientists have reported that THC and other cannabinoids, such as CBD, slow growth or even kill certain types of cancer cells growing in the laboratory. Some animal studies also suggest certain cannabinoids may slow growth and reduce the spread of some forms of cancer. But there is also a possible harm to the use of marijuana or cannabis. Because cannabis plants come in different strains with different levels of active components, it may make the response of the user very hard to predict. And that is a problem. That is why companies like Tetra Biopharma are developing novel, validated cannabinoid-based drug formulations which can, depending on the outcomes of clinical trials, be approved by federal and national regulators and, following approval, be prescribed by physicians. If you want to know more about medicinal cannabis and the clinical trials referred to in this program, visit our website at www.oncozine.com. For more information about Tetra Biopharma, the biopharmaceutical company mentioned in this program, visit the company's website at www.tetrabiopharma.com. And if you want to learn more about novel treatment options for cancer and specific drugs to help reduce the side effects of some cancer therapies, visit the website of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, which includes doctor-approved patient information. Another resource is the website of the American Cancer Society. This website offers a wealth of information about cancer, including risk factors, symptoms, how a particular cancer is found, and how it is treated. For us here at the Ongezin Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners and underwriters, for your ongoing support. Thanks to your support, our program now has a wider reach with distribution via iHeartRadio, in addition to PRX Public Radio Exchange, and in the United Kingdom and mainland Europe via UK Health Radio. You can also download our program via iTunes. In Arizona, you can listen to the Ongezin Brief via Independent Talk 1100 KFNX, one of the top 10 radio stations in Arizona, reaching almost 5 million people throughout the state. For more information about that, check our online journal Oncozine at www.oncozine.com. To help make this program possible, we need your help. If you want to support this program, know that your support allows us to bring you interviews with experts involved in the development of novel diagnostics and new cancer treatments. For more information on how to support the Oncozine Brief, go to our website at oncozine.com or visit our page at patreon.com forward slash the Oncozine Brief. Finally, if you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866 and we'll make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Thank you all. And thank you for listening and join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Ongus in Brief. The Oncozine Brief is produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hofflin, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncozine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about underwriting and sponsoring options, contact Sean Mayer in California at 949 923 1660 or visit our website at oncazine.com forward slash 
underwriting. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.